Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We are opening up the word of God and we're going to continue studying the red horse, the second seal of Revelation 6. So I kind of broke it up into two parts because I wanted to spend a message unpacking what's going on in the current world events today and how it relates possibly to this seal in the future. And so if you'll give me a little bit of your extra time this morning, this is a little bit of a longer message, maybe about 10 to 12 minutes longer. So I just pray that you guys will just hang in there, stay with me. I think that it'll be very valuable for you to see how the Bible all converges together in this message for part two of what really is going on around the world and what is unfolding in current events to set the stage for these future events. So very, very interesting. Okay, if you remember, we're going through these three groups of seven. And as a reminder, we're on seal two. So there's seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And we're on the second seal. And then between the sixth and seventh, there is a parenthetical break every step of the way. So between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there is a, an entire chapter as a break. But then the seventh unlocks the seven trumpets. So you go through six of those, and then there's a four-chapter break as a parenthetical. And then the seventh trumpet opens the seven bowls. Then you go through six bowls, and then there's just one verse as a break in chapter 16, and then you get the seventh bowl, the, and then the climax of all things, our Messiah returning for his people, Israel. So we're going through this step by step, and we are going to take our time because it's important. It's important to connect all of this throughout the Bible and to look at it with a fresh set of eyes of how the, the Lord has crafted this special book in connecting every verse throughout Scripture. So we are taking our time. Hopefully we'll get through it all before the rapture, but we'll see. Maybe not. That'd be kind of cool if we just stayed Revelation 19 and then we went up. Okay, so as a reminder that where we are, Revelation 6.3, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. So remember, John is taken to, the, to see these things. He's not a, it's not a dream. It's not a vision. It's not a, something that he just dreamed and the Lord put in his head. He actually physically went and saw the unsealing of each of these. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. And so we have this unsealing that the Lord is going through, and he is giving the authority to these angelic beings to go forward and do this judgment on his behalf. So as a reminder... Jesus is opening the seals. He's releasing and allowing these things to happen. He alone has the authority, so let's not forget who's in charge. And he goes out and he takes peace from the earth. So he's not necessarily causing war, but he just removes peace. And you remove that, man goes to his own, his heart's desire. So he alone has the authority. Let's, let's just remember as we go through this methodically, verse by verse, who is in charge? It's the king. He's the only one that could take the scroll. It's under his command. He's in complete control the entire time. And the power given to the red horse is just to remove peace from the earth. That's it. That's his lane to stay in right now. Okay, so we're going to explore some conflicts and wars in the Bible that are yet to be fulfilled. And we talked about last week the red horse and from Zechariah and the pattern of the white horse going out first to bring a false peace on the earth. And then the red horse goes about seeing that false peace, and he comes to remove peace from the earth. But we're going to explore some things that I want you to just know up front that I am not saying this is the order of which this will happen. What, I, what I'm trying to do is to challenge you to think 
critically for yourself in the Word of God and to see how could this unfold potentially in terms of all the wars that are yet to happen in the Bible. And there are also some wars that are probably not associated with the Red Seal. So some of these that we're going to look at today could happen before the rapture. Some of them could happen between the rapture and the rise of the Antichrist. Some of them may be involved in this red horse. And that's really our challenge is to go take it to the Lord and see, God, what would you have us learn from this? Okay, we need to rightly divide the word of truth. And so before we dive in to do that, I, you hear Ryan harp on these a lot, but I want to cover three kind of foundational verses of how we like to approach and study God's word. And the first one is Acts 17, 11. It's the namesake of our men's Bible study, kind of the, the nexus of the beginning of all of this from years ago. And Acts 17, 11 says, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. So it's the challenge to, the, the hardest part of this, frankly, is receiving the word with all openness of mind. So setting aside everything that you think you know about the word to date and receiving it with an openness of mind and then searching the scriptures daily to prove that that is so. And really the, the calling here is don't believe everything that I'm up here saying. Take it to the Lord yourself and take a journal, write down your questions and see if God leads you into all truth. I know he will. In 1 John 2.27 but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And what this is saying basically is, hey, you don't even need Matt. You don't need a pastor. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the Lord, the author himself, to sit down with you and to teach you all things. And so take it to him and claim this verse every day. This is the first time I started reading through the Bible cover to cover, this was my verse. And I, talk, I got a journal and I wrote down every question I had and I just took it to the Lord and let him answer it. And he did, it took me about 18 months to get through it the first time. So just be patient and let the Lord teach you through this. Okay, Proverbs 25, two. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. And so God has things in his word that he has concealed or hidden that he wants you to go on a treasure hunt. He wants you to go through the word of God and to unpack things that if you find a contradiction in the Bible, praise God because he wants you to dig into it and figure out why is that there. There is no contradiction in the Bible. But if you see an apparent one, then it's like a gigantic treasure mark of dig here. There is something deeper going on here. And so with that, keep these three in mind. What we're going to walk through today is relating a lot of wars in the Old Testament that are prophetic, that have not happened yet, and how the world stage is being set for these to occur. And three times in the Bible, God says not to add or take away from his word. So keep that in mind, too. You've got to search the entire counsel of God's word and stay in those hedges. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Just exactly what the Lord said. And it, unfortunately, that's how Eve fell, if you remember. Uh, God told her, don't eat of the tree. She said, don't eat of it or touch it. And that's not what the Lord said. So she added to his word. And as a result, all of us fell with her. Okay, the biblical war is yet future. I've laid out kind of nine of them. So we're going to walk through these a little bit. Jeremiah 49 is where the southwest portion of Iran gets destroyed. Isaiah 17 is the destruction of Damascus. Israel apparently takes a hit during that exchange. And then Psalm 83 leads into an Arab-Israeli conflict. And then Ezekiel 37, out of that, Israel becomes a gigantic, exceedingly great army. Obadiah 1, the house of Esau does not survive that. That's the Palestinians. Jeremiah 42, 49, Jordan surrenders Ammon. Zephaniah 2, after Ammon is taken, Israel takes over the rest of Jordan. And then that ultimately leads to Ezekiel 38 and 39, where Russia, Syria, and Turkey come down to try to take spoil from Israel. So we're going to walk through these, and again, just take this and take it to the Lord and search it for yourself. Okay, Jeremiah 49. 
When you read verse 34, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the chief of their might. Now, Elam is the southwest region of modern-day Iran. So if you look at Iran, there's a mountain range that kind of runs diagonally from northwest to southeast, just north of the sea. And Elam is the ancient region between the mountain range and the sea. So it's kind of the southwest portion of Iran. It's where their nuclear reactor is currently being built. So if you've heard that in the news a lot, and there's been some things over the last few years where there's been some attacks on that nuclear site. And so just keep that in mind as you read through this. The bow of Elam, the chief of their might. Now, what is the chief of their might today? Right, it's, it's nuclear power. They are so insistent on having that. And the Lord is saying he's going to break the chief of their might. So what will happen? And upon Elam will I bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them toward all those winds, and there shall be no nation whither the outcasts of Elam shall not come. So whatever happens, the people have to leave the region. Okay, they're just going to scatter the people all over the world. And like we talked about last week briefly, the greatest revival on earth right now is happening in Iran. And so you have these people converting Christianity by the thousands, and God is going to preserve them and somehow scatter them to the rest of the world. For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before them that seek their life, and I will bring evil upon them, even my fierce anger, saith the Lord. And I will send the sword after them till I have consumed them, and I will set my throne in Elam, and will destroy from thence the king and the princes, saith the Lord. See, the judgment's really against the leadership of Elam. And if you study Iran today, the people of Iran really are not our enemy. They, they love the Lord. They are desperate for revival. They're converting to Christian, Christianity from Islam. The leadership is the one they're oppressing the people. So even this in its language, in the Lord's language, fits that same model. But it shall come to pass in the latter days that I'll bring again the captivity of Elam, saith the Lord. So meaning during the millennium, those people are going to come back. And as Jesus said, he's going to set his throne there. So the destruction of Elam. So that, that could happen first. You're seeing a lot of things go around that. And if that occurred, what could be next? Well, in Isaiah 17, you have the burden of Damascus, the destruction of Damascus. Damascus is the oldest inhabited city in the world, uh, apparently, according to historians. And it's still thriving. Uh, one of my co-workers grew up in Damascus. His parents had to be exiled out during the Civil War about eight or nine years ago. And he had to go over, he and his brothers actually had to go over and sneak them out of Damascus through Europe. And I think they ended up settling in Switzerland somewhere. But in any case, Isaiah 17:1, the burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. So Damascus, clearly this is not taking place because people still live there, people travel there, people do business there. Now, if you go and just Google Damascus, you're going to see a lot of images much like this. Look at the bottom right. That is, that is walking through some streets of Damascus. So is it at war? Yes. It is destroyed from becoming a city? No. So this is not, to be, this is not fulfilled yet. And when you go on and you read Isaiah 17, there's some other things about it. So the city may be in war, but it's still a city. So this is yet to be fulfilled. Now, when this happens, apparently Israel takes a hit as a response. So the very next slide here, when you look at some recent images of Damascus, you're going to see a lot of images like this. Missiles from the U.S. and Israel going over into Damascus. And you see missiles from Syria coming back into Israel. This just is almost a daily occurrence. If you look at the headlines, look at the Jerusalem Post, look at the Arab News, look at um, all those Al Jazeera, all those new ag news agencies over there, these are almost on the front page daily. So this is, this is happening slowly. The Lord is setting the stage for these things to occur, and our goal is to pay attention to what's going on 
overseas. You know, you almost get your blinders on because of where we live in the United States, where we live in the Midwest, where we live in Oklahoma, in a, in a thriving community like Oklahoma City, and you kind of miss things like this, but man, this makes the Bible come to life whenever you see really what's going on over there. So further down in Isaiah 17, apparently out of this exchange, whatever happens, Israel takes a hit as a response. So when you get down to verse 4, and in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. So there you go. So somehow during this exchange of Damascus, Israel gets hit somehow, and they get lean, and, they, and they, the glory of them waxes thin. Okay, And it shall be as when the harvestman gathereth the corn and reapeth the ears with his arm, and it shall be as he that gathereth ears in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it as the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. In other words, the Israeli tree will be shaken and the meat of it or the middle of it, the core of it is going to fall somehow. But the outermost branches or the top of it as in the rim around the outside is going to stay intact. At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. Now, the other thing I want you to notice as we go through these war by war, notice that God's intent is that the world will know he is God. That's, that is the ultimate goal. Apparently, we will be living in a time much like the Exodus in Egypt, that it took a great judgment for the world to know who really is God. And when, you, and when the children of Israel come out of Egypt, remember when Joshua sends the two spies into Jericho and they get Rahab saved? Remember Rahab says, we have heard of the great judgments that delivered you out of Egypt. You know, we know of your God, we know of your king through that. So through a mighty move of God, the world is going to know who really is the king. And it's not Allah, it's not Buddha, it's not you fill in the blank. It's not any of those other gods worshipped over in the Middle East. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the God. So that's the, that's the goal of all these wars. Okay, so we've gone through kind of the first three. Let's look at Psalm 83. So after Israel takes a hit, think about this. They could be weakened. And Psalm 83 details a war where the surrounding nations, basically the nations that touch and border Israel today, come to try to wipe them off the map. So if Iran gets destroyed in the southwest portion, Israel has some exchange with Syria, they take a hit, they're weakened. You could see those nations confederating together and saying, okay, now let's go wipe them off the map. They're weakened, right? It could set the stage for them to say, now's our time. And when you think about it, no... No Arab nation over there right now is pro-Israel. You know, Trump last year did a lot of peace deals with the Sudan, Morocco, and he was working on Saudi Arabia. And when you look at those nations, he was making peace agreements, brokering peace between Israel and those nations. Later on, we're going to see in Ezekiel 38 and some others that those are the nations that stand by idly when these wars start to unfold. So even in that, God was setting the stage of putting agreements in place where these nations will stand by and go, hey, what are you guys doing? Why are you coming to fight Israel? So even in that stage setting, you can see um, God setting this, this picture. Okay, Psalm 83, very, very interesting psalm. It's the last psalm of Asaph. Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace and be not still, O God. For lo, thy enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. So Asaph was a prominent Levite. He was a singer and seer in David's court and was the son of Berkiah of the tribe of Levi. And you can look that up through 1 Chronicles 6, 15, 16, 2 Chronicles 29. He's the ancestor of the sons of Asaph. And he was one of the great families of the temple musicians. So Asaph was pretty prominent in David's court at that time. And it's the last psalm. He wrote Psalm 50 and 71 through 83. So it's the last psalm of Asaph that describes this war that is yet future. And really, it's the Holy Spirit writing it through him. Just keep that in mind. 
Whoever these enemies are here, they hate the Lord and are lifting up the head. So these enemies, look at they hate God. Are there any more nations on earth that hate God than Arab nations? I mean, just think about it. They, they despise the God of the Bible. You know, they really rail against him a lot, and they're lifting up their head to do so. They've taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. So thy people refers to Israel. We'll see that confirmed in a minute. God's chosen people. But who are his hidden ones? And I'm not saying this is a, a matter of fact. You know, I want you guys to take it to the Lord and see. If you're watching this online, take it to the Lord and see. But thy hidden ones, you know, could this be a reference to the raptured church? Okay, they, are they blaspheming God's people Israel because they regain the name of his people Israel but they're also blaspheming this other group of people, his hidden ones. And we talked about this in Revelation 4, verse 1, when we did a deep dive on the rapture. But three times in the Old Testament, God refers to the rapture as hiding us. So I don't think that's a coincidence. In Psalms 27, 5, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock, and that rock is Jesus. Psalms 31, 19, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. See, in Psalms, he's even talking about hiding us from the plots of man. So why are they in Psalm 83 taking crafty counsel against his hidden ones? You know, God is, is perhaps hiding us from that through the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in pavilion from the strife of tongues. And otherwise, in other words, they're going to be having strife against his people, but he's going to hide us. Isaiah 26, come my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. So here you've got, God is saying, I'm going to hide my people until whatever happens, happens, which is the seven-year tribulation, whatever happens between the rapture and that. So back to Psalm 83, they have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance, for they have consulted together with one consent, they are confederate against thee. So in verse 3, they're taking counsel against God's people. And it's confirmed who his people are in the conflicts. It's a nation that has the name of Israel. And the motivation is to wipe Israel off the map so they are no more in remembrance. So they are confederating to come against Israel to take them out. Let them not be a nation anymore. Okay, so Psalm uh, verses 6 through 8. The, and here's the confederation. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagarenes, Gebel, and Ammon, and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assur, or the Assyrians, also is joined with them. They have Hulpen, the children of Lot, Selah. So these names, you know, part of the problem when you study the Old Testament is the names of nations change throughout the years. And Turkey used to be called a different name. Iran used to be called Persia. You, know, you go through these names, and we change as the borders of nations change, but God uses the name of who originally settled those lands to make it consistent, so you can't get it wrong. And when you go down this list, the tabernacles of Edom, or the tents of Edom, those are the Palestinians and the southern uh, Jordanians. The Ishmaelites are the Saudis, or kind of the north end of Saudi Arabia. It's not the full nation. Okay, Moab are the Palestinians and central Jordanians. The Hagarenes are the Egyptians, or that Jordan, that northern, northeast Jordan area. Gabal is Hezbollah or northern Lebanon. Okay, when you look at that. Ammon, that's obviously over in Jordan, Palestinian, northern Jordanians. Amalek is the Sinai area. Philistia is Hamas of the Gaza Strip. Tyre is Hezbollah, southern Lebanese or Lebanon. And then Assyria, so the Syrians and the northern Iraqis. So when you look at that, when you look at this list that God has in Psalm 83, and you look at a modern map, they are all the nations or the lands that surround and border Israel. Okay, so it's this kind of inner ring of nations that are taking up counsel against God's people, and they're confederating to come wipe it off the map. 
Okay, do unto them unto the Midianites as to Caesarea, as to Jabin, at the book, the brook of Kisson, which perished at Ed Endor. They became as dung before the earth, make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, yea, all their princes as Zeba and as Zalmunna, who said, let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. So what's happening is the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, God, when these nations rise up to do this, go and do to them like you did to them back in the days of the judges. That's what he's calling. He's petitioning the Lord to stand up and fight for Israel again, much like he did in the days of judges. So the petition here is to do unto them what God did to the enemies in the past. The Midianites are an Arabian tribe descended from Midian. He's the fourth son of Abraham by Keturah. You can go back and look that up. They inhabited the desert north of the peninsula of Arabia in Genesis 25 and 1 Chronicles 1. Caesarea is the captain of the host of Jabin, the Canaanite king who reigned in Hazor, routed by the army of Barak on the plains and killed by Jael. That's in Judges 4 and 5. Oreb and Zeb were the prince generals of Midian, and they were their kings. Uh, Zeba and Zalmunna were their kings. They were defeated by Gideon, if you remember in Judges 7 and 8. So the enemies of the past had the same goal as this upcoming conflict, which was to wipe Israel off the map. Let them be a people and a nation no more. So in Psalm 83, they're taking the same goal. They're they have the same goal, the same intent, and yet the psalmist is saying, hey, go do to them what you did in the past. Oh my God, make them like a wheel as the stubble before the wind, as the fire burneth a wood, and as the flame setteth the mountains on fire. So persecute them with thy tempest and make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Notice the intent again. So God, do that to them so that they will seek you and seek you out through a great judgment and not worship a false god. Okay, let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that you, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. Again, the goal, that the world knows who is Jehovah, who is Yahweh, who is the true God of this world. And it appears that the only way these people in the world will know that he alone is God is to move in a mighty judgment. And so that's... That's kind of the Psalm 83. You can see Israel's regathered in the land. The ancient cities are rebuilt and inhabited. They meet Muslim Arab resistance. Israel establishes an army for a defense. That goes into Ezekiel 36 and 37. Adjacent Muslim nations confederate against Israel in Psalm 83. The Confederacy is committed to the destruction of Israel. War starts, maybe because, again, Israel's weakened from an attack from Syria. They've waxed thin. Israel regains the title of my people. So they regain that title. And this could be where God is once again choosing to work through the world, the planet Earth, through his nation, Israel. They decisively defeat the Confederacy, and Israel has become an exceedingly great army at that point. They take prisoners of war. The region's reshaped. Israel expands its borders to what was promised to Abraham. And then they dwell securely in the land, setting up Ezekiel 38 and 39. So this is just kind of a speculation, but you can kind of see through the Old Testament how this could unfold of what God has declared is going to happen. When you look at Genesis 15, the land that God promised to Abraham, it was from the river Nile to the great river Euphrates. So this is a map showing what God promised to his people. It was an unconditional promise. If you remember, he set, it, he set Abraham asleep. He alone walked through the covenant reciting the terms of it. And God promises this land. At some point, they will regain this land. Right now, they have a small fraction of it. Uh, Britain, after World War II, annexed a big piece of it to create Jordan. And they've never been the same since because they kind of turned their back on Israel. But at some point, God is going to restore this land to them of what they promised. It will for sure be theirs in the millennium. The question is, do they get it before then? And you could kind of see if Psalms 83 happens, when it does happen, they'll annex and take all of that land. And again, it's those surrounding nations. Okay, so we've kind of gone through the bulk of these, getting down to kind of the big event, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And so when, after Psalm 83, 
They might have an exceedingly great army from Ezekiel 37. The house of Esau is not going to survive that, according to Obadiah chapter 1. Jeremiah 49 and Zephaniah 2 say Jordan will become a part of Israel. And then all of that's going to set up for them to dwell safely, right? Their neighbors will not be launching rockets into Israel anymore. They're going to dwell safely without walls. They have a gigantic wall that surrounds Israel right now. And that sets up the event for Ezekiel 38 and 39. So the Gog and Magog war. Uh, you, can, you can search this and Google it and look on Amazon, and there are, there are hundreds of books written about this war, this prophetic war. And what I would recommend you do if you're interested in studying this is to read it yourself and write down all of your questions about it and take it to the Lord before you pick up any other book about it and just see what God would show you out of it. So it's the occasion in which God himself intervenes to stop this invasion of Israel by an outer ring nations led by Magog. And we're going to talk about who these parties are in a minute. The chapters appear to anticipate the use of nuclear weapons when you get to chapter 39. So we'll look at that. It opens up, and the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against them, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So Magog, we're going to see they have a, some allies. They rally together in these chapters. It's Persia, Cush, Put, Libya, Gomar, Tagarma, uh, Meshech, and Tubal. So who is Gog, the first player that shows up here? You know, if you, if you just go to any Bible concordance and you look up the name Gog, you're only going to find it one other place in the Bible, in the English King James Bible, and it's in Revelation chapter 20. But in Amos chapter 7, verse 1, you know, it's often not like the Lord to just introduce a major character on the scene without having some background of him. And I found this interesting in Amos 7, verse 1, in the Septuagint. So if you don't know what that is, 70 Greek scholars converted the Old Testament Hebrew into the, the language of the world, into Greek, 300 years before Jesus walked the earth. And you can buy a copy of it today. It's an interesting read. They broke down the Hebrew word by word and translated it, so it's a, it's a very worth, worthwhile study. But Amos 7.1 in the Septuagint, it says, Thus has the Lord God showed me, and behold, a swarm of locusts coming from the east, and behold, one caterpillar, King Gog. And it's from this that you can decipher that Gog is a demon title, and you can go through and find that out. In Revelation 20, Gog shows up again at the very end of the millennium, raising up an army again to come against the Lord, which is a different Gog and Magog invasion, and there's some reasons for that. So in verse 4, And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling the swords. The word horses here is susa, which literally means a leaper. So it doesn't have to be a, a horseback rider. In Jeremiah 8, it's a crane or a bird. In Exodus 14, it's a chariot rider. And then it, when you go to Ezekiel 38, 5, the next verse, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. So Persia's Iran, Ethiopia's Cush, Libya's Put. So Libya's kind of that northwest part of, west of Egypt, northern Africa. And then obviously uh, Ethiopia is southwest of Egypt. And then Persia, Iran is kind of east of Syria there. So you have Gog and Magog, and then these are their allies, right? These kind of outer ring of nations. If you remember the map from Psalm 83, it's all those nations, the next outer ring of them. Okay, verse 6. Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarma, of the north quarters and all his bands, and many people with thee. So Gomer is from the Sumerians. It settled along the the Rhine, it's like Poland, Eastern Germany, Czechoslovakia, it's kind of that Eastern Europe region. Tagarma is the Armenians, Turkey or Turkestan. And then it, the Lord goes on, be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. After many days thou shalt be visited, in the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, and is gathered out of many people. So this is Israel being regathered in the land. We've seen that over the, in 1948. 
And then ever since then, the Jews around the world have been migrating back to their homeland. So God is bringing them back. Okay, and it's gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. And again, does Israel dwell safely today? You know, the answer is obviously no. We saw a lot of pictures of the rockets being shot in. You can't go a day without a headline in the newspaper of another rocket hits Israel, some kind of suicide bomber hits a market, something happens. The entire world confederates against them continuously, especially their neighbors. Okay, in verses 9 through 11, thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. So God's talking about Gog and Magog and their allies. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at that same time shall things come into thy mind. And thou shalt think an evil thought, and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. They have a huge wall right now. It's over 400 miles long, so it's not unwalled. I will go to them that are at rest. They are not at rest right now. That dwell safely. They are not dwelling safely right now. And all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. And so, again, God just is repeating this to know this has not happened yet. They're not dwelling safely. They have walls. They're not at peace. They're not at rest right now. To take a spoil. So look at the motivation here of these nations. It's to take great spoil from Israel. You know, right now they are, I think I mentioned this last week, they're one-tenth the size of the state of Oklahoma. If you think about that, they have no natural resources. Uh, They are making great oil and petroleum reserve fines in their lands, but, I mean, for the most part, they're not a global world economy, yet they bless the entire world. They're the greatest fruit exporter to Europe, for example. They have a, a strong blessing from the Lord. So the motivation of these players is to come and to take spoil. Now, if they conquered the lands, the surrounding neighbors, and expanded their borders, and they were the richest oil nation on earth, then yes, they would have great riches and spoil to take. Okay, to take prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited. So apparently in Psalm 83, whenever they expand, they're going to inhabit desolate places that are currently not inhabited. And when you look around the borders around Damascus, the suburbs are a waste. Northern Saudi Arabia, there is nothing there for miles. You know, could God turn the wilderness into a wellspring of life again? I don't know. But it would be interesting, just like he did for Israel when they took back the land in 1948. Okay, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land, Sheba and Dedan. So Sheba and Dedan is the southern portion of Saudi Arabia. It's kind of that southern end of Saudi Arabia. And the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, Tarshish is likely uh, Britain, if you study this in the Old Testament. Solomon got 10 from Tarshish when he reigned, and that's what Britain means, Britannica. It's a source of 10. So you could do some historical background and kind of see that Great Britain probably as references that, those islands. The young lions thereof, I don't know, a lot of people speculate that could be a, a call to the United States. We were kind of a young lion out of Britain. But that's to be determined. A lot of people say that the United States doesn't show up anywhere in prophecy, and certainly it doesn't by name, but this could be a call to us. Okay, art thou, with the young lines thereof, shall say unto thee, art thou come to take a spoil? So notice these other nations are just asking, what are you doing? You know, Sheba and Dedan, Britain, maybe the United States, maybe the nations that, that were birthed out of the Britain, out of the, the British kingdom. They're basically standing by idle and saying, hey, what are you guys doing here? What are you, why are you attacking Israel? They're choosing not to engage, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take great spoil. And so we're sitting idle. Someone, these outer nations are sitting idle watching Russia and these, these cohorts come down. Okay, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, thus saith the Lord God, in that day when my people Israel dwell safely, Shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come back, come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. 
And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me. Again, look at God's motivation here, that the heathen may know he is God, that he wants desperately to save as many people as he can. When I shall be sanctified in thee, O God, before their eyes. Thus saith the Lord God, art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? Again, it's, it's against his people Israel, and God is once again working through the earth with his coveted people Israel. And it should come to pass at the same time when God shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. So God gets furious with these nations. He is angry that they are coming against his people, and he's going to stand up and go fight for them. My fury shall come up in my face, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Now, who is the jealousy for? If he's longing for them to know him, the jealousy obviously is because they're rejecting him. And he's a jealous God. He's jealous because all of these people choose to worship the same God that he fought against all the way back in Joshua 5, in Jericho, the house of the moon God. Okay, that's Allah. That's Islamic religion. He's jealous because he wants them so desperately to know him. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. So the entire world is going to know this is happening and that it's God fighting on behalf of Israel. And the mountains shall be thrown down. That'd be very interesting to see how God's going to throw down mountains. And the steep places shall fall. It's kind of a harken back to the high places. If you remember back in the Old Testament, they would worship all these false idols on the high places. And God would always tell them to tear them down. So God's going to tear down those high places. And the mountains shall be thrown down. And the steep places shall fall. And every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him. And overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself. And I will be known in the eyes of many nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. So again, that's one of my favorite titles of Jesus, I am. So that closes chapter 38. And when you go on, we won't go through every verse of 39, but the full chapter seems to portray a nuclear confrontation. In verse, verse 9 of chapter 39, the leftover weapons are used by Israel for energy for seven years. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons and they shall burn them with fire seven years. So that kind of gives you a hint of where maybe this falls in the timeline. This is not the same Gog and Magog war of Revelation 20 verse, 20 verse 8, I think. Because obviously at that point, Jesus is back. It's, it's at the end of the millennium. He has reigned for a thousand years. He creates a new heaven and a new earth. So they're obviously not going to need to burn Fuel weapons for fuel for seven years. We're going to sit there and watch him roll up the scroll or the uh, heavens like a scroll. So they wait seven months before clearing the area of the battlefield. That's in verse 14. After the end of seven months, shall they search? So, however, God wipes them out. Basically, Israel sits back for seven months to let something settle. Now, what could that be? I mean, that could be nuclear weaponry could be the, the radiation. They've got to wait a while before they go in. And then in verse 14, it continues, they shall sever out men of continual employment to clean up the battlefield. So read that as professionals. They're, getting, they're hiring professionals to come clean this up. They bury all the remains east of the Dead Sea. That's downwind. So in verse 11, the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea, and it shall stop the noses of the passengers in there shall they bury Gog and all his multitude. And they shall call it the Valley of Hamangog. That's in verse 11. So why would they bury the remains east of the Dead Sea? It's, well, it's downwind, so the radiation's not blowing back. 
Travelers encountering the missed remains are not to touch them. They mark their location, and the professionals then come bury them eastward. And the passengers that pass through the land, when any seeth a man's bone, then shall he set up a sign on it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. In other words, when people are traveling through this land, they're going to see, hey, you guys missed one, and they're going to set up a little sign. The professionals will come take care of it and bury it east of the Dead Sea. So why is God allowing this invasion? Again, just pay attention to this theme through all of these. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. You know, it's, it's to get the world's attention again, and we cannot reiterate that enough. It's God's crying to the world to accept him. But, you know, through that whole exchange, all of those immediate neighbors are conspicuously absent. The Lebanese, the Syrians, the Iraqis, the Jordanians, the Egyptians. You know, where are they? And I, and I would put forward they probably are wiped out from Psalm 83. So when you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, it's those outer ring of nations. You can kind of see the arrows coming down to where Israel is. Uh, the, the map on the upper left kind of shows it a little better in color against today. But you can see that white areas, those outer ring, the inner ring of nations that are not in this exchange because they've probably been wiped out from that, from Psalm 83. So is this being set up today? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for the first time in, in a long time, Iran, Turkey, and Russia, so Persia, Teshek and Mubal, or uh, Teshek and um, Mubal, and then Magog are all aligned together. And you can see this in the headlines a lot. The picture on the bottom right is uh, Turkey, Iran, and Russia gathering together for a meeting. That picture's from 2018, but the article is from last month in March, or I guess two months ago. It's May already. Iran, Russia, and Turkey signal growing alliance. That was in March. In 2013, actually a nonprofit here in the United States, the Turkey, Russia, and Iran Nexus wrote an entire paper on the strength of these three nations gathering together and what are they doing to reshape the Middle East. So you can see just in the modern headlines the alliance of these parties growing and growing and growing. And so something is about to break. So there you go. We've gone through all of them in a really a proposed speculative order of how this could unfold on the horizon. And so, again, our challenge is take it to the Lord and see, is this how this is all going to unfold? Are we going to see this before the rapture? You know, are some of these going to happen between the rapture and the rise of the Antichrist? Do some of them start to unfold before we're raptured and that's the trigger for God to bring us home? You know, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. I'm asking the question, and I'm seeking the Lord on it a lot because I think it's something that he would love for us to understand better. So I would just challenge you to do the same thing. Go home and take it to the Lord and study this. You know, our challenge is to watch the headlines and let the Lord show us how is this relating to the Old Testament. What do you have for us to know today as your bride? And again, what are we to do with all this? We're to be about his business. You know, it's not to be fearful, it's to go out and to preach the gospel and to occupy until he comes. Luke 19, and said unto them, this is Jesus speaking, occupy till I come. So he's entrusted you with a mission. He's entrusted me with a mission. He's entrusted this church with a mission. And that is to grow an unashamed bride ever looking for his return so that when he does come back, remember Jesus asked sarcastically, shall the son of man find faith on the earth? It's a very rhetorical, sarcastic question, and frankly, I want the, the answer to be yes. I want him to see right here in Edmond in Oklahoma City, in the state of Oklahoma, that he finds faith right here in New City, that the people of this church are looking for him and longing to go home with him. You know, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I would love to go home, but until then, we have a mission. We have a purpose. As long as you have breath in your lungs, the Lord wants you here for a purpose, to do something for his kingdom. You have a call, a special anointing on your life. If you are in him, he, is a, he has anointed you with a gift to do something for his kingdom. And the greatest journey of your life will be to figure out what that is. That's honestly 
you will not have fulfillment in your life until you figure out the call on your life. And a lot of people spend their lives climbing a ladder looking for that call at the end of their life to only find, man, I climbed the wrong ladder. You know, you get old and you're, and you're at the end of your age, end of your days, and you look around and you realize, what did I just spend the last 40 years of my career doing? So figure out what your call is. I would challenge you, if you don't know what it is, take it to the Lord. He wants to share it with you because he endowed you with the gifts to go fulfill it. So if you don't know what it is, if you don't feel like you have a full understanding of it, go to your bedroom, shut the door, and get on your knees and take it to the throne room and ask the Lord, God, what would you have me do with the days ahead? Remember, God says to number your days. That means to count them, to take track of them, to know, God, what would you have me do with each of them that I have left? You know, if you think about, I I turned 40 this year. Statistically, I've got 32 years left, right? As a male in the United States, right? I mean, statistically, it's that's the, the actuary tables would tell you that. Hopefully I live longer than that, but you could count the weekends. You know, 30, 32 times 52, and you'd get some number, 1,500 and something weekends left. So if you do not know the Lord, if you're watching this online, you don't know Jesus, and you want to make sure that you have a trip to the throne room planned before it gets really bad on earth, it's so simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. So if you do not know the Lord, you can make that happen today. You can make sure you've got that one-way ticket. And then the challenge is to go find out what does God want you to do with that? How does he want you to serve him, to glorify him and his kingdom? So take your place in the army of Christ on your white horse now, because we are going to go home soon. Hopefully it happens in our lifetime. I don't know if it will or not, but it could. Every day we get closer. And as long as the Lord tarries, we've got to be about his business. So with that, we'll close in prayer. If you need prayer, if you've got salvation questions, anything, just email us. There's our email. Somebody will reach out to you. We're happy to help. And with that, we'll wrap up. And next week, we'll go into the next seal, Jesus Unlocks. Lord, thank you so much for New City Church. Thank you for our thriving children's ministry. Thank you for the blessing of the new space. Thank you, God, that there's a place for the children to come and to learn and dive in the depth of your word and to get hungry and to be hungry and to ask questions. God, we just thank you for that. Thank you for all of the people here this morning. Thank you for all of the families watching online that were traveling this morning and those that may be watching us for the first time. God, I pray that they would find a special place here at New City and let it be a welcoming church family, a body that is here to do something mighty for your kingdom. So Lord, thank you for this time together. We just pray that you would bless our week ahead, God. In Jesus' name, amen.